Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Kevin Nye. Kevin is an advocate for people experiencing homelessness and the author of the recent book, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Tiger Wine. Tiger Wine is a rock band from Colorado. You can get connected with Kevin and Tiger Wine and their work in the links in the episode description. I also want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 12th through the 15th, 2022 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code APT, you can receive $50 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. Today I have Kevin Nye with me, and Kevin, you do a ton of work uh, with homelessness, and uh, you honestly, at least in my own personal life, are probably the premier kind of preeminent voice uh, when it comes to homeless issues. And so I'm just really excited to chat more about your book. You just wrote a book uh, that will be coming out very soon. It's called Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. You're making a bold claim in the book, and I think it's amazing. So anyway, I'm really excited for it. We're going to chat a little bit about it. But before all of that, who is Kevin Nye to Kevin Nye? Oh, man. Gosh, I am I'm a lot of things. Yeah, I'm a a writer, which is why I'm here. I'm also sort of separate but overlapping with that. You know, I'm I'm a professional in the homelessness services field, mm. right? Like um I'm not writing about it from a place of academia, like it's the work that I right, do. Right. I love movies. I'm sitting in front of a wall of Spider-Man comics. I was just about to say, you have to say something about being a Spider-Man fan because clearly that's an important part of your life. Yeah, I'm a huge Spider-Man fan. And like you should know that I just moved and I've there's so many boxes that I haven't unpacked, but I did take the time to hang all of these Spider-Man comics on the wall. Uh, so if that tells you anything. I'll, I'll just say when I was substitute teaching in Minneapolis and I would substitute from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade and I would walk into a classroom and there'd be a bunch of kids there and it didn't matter if they've seen me before or not. Every single kid would go, Mr. Spider-Man, that's what we're calling you now. I don't know where they got it. I used to have like more like black rimmed glasses. And so I don't know if I kind of had like the PD, Peter Parker look. I think a lot of these kids grew up more with like the Andrew Garfield series of mm-hmm. Spider-Mans. I grew up with the the Toby, is it McGuire Toby guy? McGuire, yeah. And uh, so anyway, I guess I've been told I look like both of them. And uh, just for whatever reason, it must have been in the air in Minneapolis. But the kids just thought I was Mr. Spider-Man. Wow, that's awesome. Well, that makes sense why I'm so drawn to your tweets then. I guess so. I I don't think I feel ever any spidey senses, but who knows? Maybe someday. Maybe I'll get bit by a spider, and before you know it, I'm a little public vigilante. <laughs> if Minneapolis needs anything, it's vigilante. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right, so yeah. let's talk about the book. Uh, again, 
You recently wrote it, uh, so it's all very fresh. Uh, this is your first book, right? Yes. So with this being your first book, I can imagine there's lots of things that you learn about yourself. So what is something that you learned about yourself as you wrote the book where you're like, wow, didn't know that about myself before. Maybe there was some sort of like, wow, I didn't know I was like that type of writer. Or maybe you were like, I didn't realize like in order for me to do something in the world, I have to do it this way. Anyway, anything that you learned about yourself as you wrote your very first book? Interesting. Yeah, I will say my my thinking about the issue and uh, of homelessness and how I was writing about it definitely changed while I was writing about it. For one, I, you know, I've always been, always tried to commit to something I learned in a preaching course, which was never make yourself the hero of your own story, which I think more preachers need to (laughs) learn that. (laughs) But and I'm tr- and in the book, I tell stories, which mostly they're not about me. They're about other people, but I have a role in the story. And sometimes the thing I do in the story is a good thing, right? Like I help right. a person, right? Uh, but learning to... I would hope that if you work yeah. with people experiencing homelessness, most of the time your role in the story is helping and not actually yes. hurting. Right, exactly. Uh, but yeah, choosing and learning how to write the stories that don't center me as the helper, but center the individual as, you know, the person who, you know, is, is the hero of the story, right? Is the person Mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, is displaying resilience and, and thoughtfulness and, and taking a step forward, you know, but then even just in terms of what was happening politically while I was writing, I wrote the book, I started writing the book in 2019, 2020. Okay. And, you know, then COVID happens, which in some ways enabled me to write the book because there was less other things to do. But at the time, Los Angeles really started cracking down on how they were addressing homelessness mm-hmm. and starting mm-hmm. to give up on a lot of best practices and lean more into criminalization than they ever had. And I think seeing that happen firsthand really, really changed it. It actually it added a chapter to my book or took mm-hmm. an idea that was kind of going to be a small thing and turned it into a whole chapter of its own really on, on community and not just how unhoused people form community and how mm-hmm. crucial communities are, but also the ways that, you know, the way we police and enforce and make laws really sabotage uh, communities mm-hmm. of unhoused mm-hmm. people uh, in ways that are detrimental to to them, obviously, but also just to our communities at large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the book, the I said a lot that I'm so glad that I wrote the book exactly when I did, because it wouldn't have been that book if I didn't uh, get to witness and sort of, I should say, like bear witness to firsthand mm-hmm. uh, what happened to uh, some particular encampments during COVID. The book is a beautiful mix of obviously your own personal memoir, but also theology. And you're kind of going back and forth between the two a lot. What did you learn maybe theologically or maybe about homelessness as you wrote the book that you didn't know before? Is there anything that came up either in the research or as you kind of were going back in some of these personal stories of, wow, I didn't realize that that was a thing, or maybe I didn't know that about Christianity or that about Jesus or that about theology or that about homelessness. Uh, Anything that came up in that process that you just didn't know before? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to think of any specific example because when I, you know, when I am in the work, again, I, like I said earlier, I'm not coming at this from an academic standpoint, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things that I sort of knew by experiencing it and by seeing them, you know, over and over again in people's stories. And when I went to sort of tell those stories, I thought, well, I actually need some data <laughs> to support mm-hmm. that. You know, mm-hmm. I can't just say that something is true. And and doing the is work. Is there anything to that came up in that data where you're like, whoa, didn't realize that? Yes, definitely some. Yeah, some stats that were. It's like it's worse than I thought. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but just when I was trying to in one chapter frame how much homelessness is is a crisis of affordable housing right mm. there's a a group that has a stat for every x number of people who need affordable housing there's this many units available uh, or not even available but that just exists whether or not they're used or unused and it was just staggering i remember the one that like popped off to me and i don't think it was i don't know if it was in your book or not but that something along the lines, and I think the numbers are a little mixed on this, but somewhere around 50% of homeless youth are LGBTQ. Mm. Like a huge disproportionate amount. And and that that was one that was like, holy cow, I didn't Mm. realize that. And that was something I learned about years ago. Um, But when when talking around some of the, the data around homelessness, that was one that really popped out to me. Yeah. And that was especially uh, visible to me in Los Angeles, because mm. I often mm-hmm. say that, you know, if you're if you're living in the Midwest and you you're a, you know a teenager and you come out to your parents and they kick you out, where are you going to go? You know, you're mm-hmm. going to imagine yourself in a the city you see in the movies that's tolerant and, mm-hmm. you know, has pride parades. And and I, I think I say this in the book that, you know, Los Angeles may be a safer place to be queer, but it's not a good place to be poor. Mm. Uh, and so we do see it, a lot of our youth homelessness is probably probably more than 50 percent, probably closer to like wow. three quarters. Wow. So one of the things that I think we should like maybe just kind of preface with this interview, and it's already kind of happened a couple of times I've noticed, and I'm sure it will continue to happen throughout this episode, but like how we talk about the people who are homeless, like, and that was actually one thing when I wrote my endorsement for the book, I wanted to make sure like, am I talking about this in a way that's um, humane and just? And so you know, I hear a lot of times now we should use the term of pe- people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard, you know, clearly that, you know, there's the term that has been used for a long time of homeless people. You've even used unhoused people I've heard mentioned before. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, what is kind of the term we should be using and why? Uh, j- just out of curiosity. And th- this was ha- this happened after I wrote the endorsement, but I saw some thread on Twitter that went semi-viral that was basically this person that also works with people experiencing homelessness and how he thinks that that term actually is this like sort of neoliberal response. And so anyway, I'm just like, it seems kind of confusing sometimes where it's like, sometimes you have people that like are with their best intentions are still like, actually, that's not the best term. And sometimes you see people with their best intentions that are like, no, this is the better term. So anyway, it seems a little confusing, but I'm just curious, like, why do you use the terms that you use in the book? 
Um, and, and that's mostly what I'm interested in because I think that will really help preface like how we should be talking about this throughout the rest of the interview. Yeah, and I definitely I appreciate you framing the question that way because yeah, people really do disagree and they all have really good points. So I use people experiencing homelessness and I used and I use unhoused. You've probably heard me use both <laughs> throughout this so far. Um, for me, people experiencing homelessness does a couple things. One, it's person first language, right? You acknowledge the person before you acknowledge the situation that they're in. You also are framing it as an experience, which is a good reminder that homelessness can be temporary, that it should be temporary, that it's not like a, it's not a physical trait, like you might say, like a, a blonde person, right? I also will use unhoused and what that does kind of rhetorically, I think that the word homeless or homeless person We've been using that term for so long and in such negative ways that our brain receives that and just skips a whole lot of steps as to what that means. Because you can break it down and say homeless, that is a person without a home, and that means the same as unhoused. But because it's a different word, it, it just like it, it makes our brains not able to just bypass that. Mm-hmm. We actually have to think about it for a second. Uh, and I also like the way that it frames that they are unhoused, which sort of puts the impetus back on society that it sort of makes the declaration that as a community, whether it's a city a country or a neighborhood, that we have a responsibility to house mm. everyone. And so by saying they are unhoused sort of makes a statement that their community has not done what they need to in housing them versus homeless sort of feeds into this idea of that they are that they don't have something right Mm. as if it's a housing is a possession uh that only some people are entitled Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. so that's what i kind of am doing when i use that language but i really i do not police anyone (laughs) in their language or, or really correct people Mm -hmm. Uh, And the main reason for that is that the people I hear using homeless the most often are people who are experiencing homelessness, right? And I'm certainly not going to correct them like, oh, actually, the term for you is this, (laughs) right? And I think that a lot of the negative response to people experiencing homelessness I've heard has come from people with lived experience. And I suspect that the main like critique is that we're changing language without changing anything else, right? Mm. It's like, oh, good, you've done your your liberal duty and using better language to ignore me. <laughs> mm. That's a really good point. You know, kind of along the lines of the changing of language around homelessness, at the beginning of the book, you talk about how your understanding of homelessness has also changed over the years. Can you talk a little bit about how that understanding has changed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, I grew up pretty reasonably conservative evangelical and you know it was never explicitly said to me that like homeless people deserve to be homeless and you shouldn't help them right it was much more of like yeah we should help them but we're not really going to investigate at all like why they became homeless from a systematic way it's just Mm -hmm. maybe they did something bad maybe something unfortunate happened to them but it's very individual right and then when I went to college for to study theology and ministry, I did an internship at 
a, uh, a church that had a really robust nonprofit actually focused on the unhoused population in Oklahoma City. And that sort of helped really bring humanity to people for me that I started just spending time with people and rather than framing it as like a, oh, I should be helping them. I found that some of the best stuff I could do with my time there was just sitting and eating meals and, and then in church worshiping with, Mm -hmm. with people experiencing homelessness and sort of, I couldn't have articulated at the time, but later on I would, that I'm sort was sort of learning at the time to flatten the ground that we're standing on. Whereas very often in, in churches, but also in just service provision, you know, in, in my field, there is this very, like, I am the case manager. You are the client. I am above you. You need to listen to me. And if you don't do the thing that I have decided is the thing that you need to do, then you are being difficult versus what, what works. And what I think is a, you know, a more humane and also a more like theologically responsible thing to do, which is like, we're, we're on the same, on the same plane here. And we, we partner together for our, for your flourishing and, but also the community's flourishing. At the beginning of the book, you lay out this very bold theological claim that each person experiencing homelessness is Christ. Super bold. So how is each person experiencing homelessness Christ? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of get that from exegeting, you know, the very famous texts where, you know, Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And again, coming, coming back to that same point I was just making, like, that's where I really get that idea from. We read that text and we think, oh, we should help poor people. We should help unhoused people. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you were to take seriously that, you know, the unhoused man on the street corner is Jesus and you were approaching that person with that understanding, you wouldn't show up with like a game plan. Like, all right, here, Jesus, you need to get your ID and then you're going to get a job and then you're going to go to the shelter. Like we would enter into a relationship. Right. We would spend a Mm -hmm. lot more time listening than talking. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's Jesus who makes that claim, right? Not just that each each unhoused person is Jesus, but also that every unhoused person is Jesus. And and that's sort of where I, I remind us to, obviously, we need to enter into relationships with individuals, but we also need to look at the systems. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if we believe that every single person experiencing homelessness was Jesus, we might start to ask questions like, why are there so many Jesuses out on the street? <laughs> like, right. like, what is up with that? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, that segues into my next question really well. You talk about, and this was just like, this is something I've heard before, but just to like hear it reinforced was just, uh, it's so unbelievably hard to like swallow. But you talk about how we are already spending billions of dollars to manage homelessness when that same amount, and this is what just blows my mind, when that same amount of money that billions of dollars could be simply spent to end it. 
Yeah. That, that's what's just like, we are already spending more money to manage homelessness than how much it would cost to just simply end it. So there seems to be a reason why homelessness is being managed rather than being ended. And I'm really curious. It seems like it's got to be capitalism, right? Like mm-hmm. it really seems like the only way you could reasonably make or the only reason why you would want to just simply manage homelessness rather than end it is because you want to uphold capitalism. Anyway, I'm just curious your thoughts around that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I could run wild with my kind of larger, you know, political ideologies and all that, but I think it, it is, it's certainly, you cannot argue anything less than the fact that capitalism has run rampant on housing and turn housing into a commodity, mm. uh, which it just should not be. Like, even if you, even if you wanted to defend capitalism, you can't, and it's the same thing with healthcare, right? Like healthcare and housing are two things that just should not be products. They should not be mm. commodified. And because we've allowed housing to be that, and also allowed housing to be sort of a uh, identity marker for success, in capitalism, right? And that that this goes back a long time into, you know, Americana that, you know, a successful uh, person, like to win the game of capitalism means you have a spouse and two and a half kids and a, a house with a white picket fence, you know? Mm-hmm. And because we've so merged the idea of housing with with success, the idea that anyone would get housing for free, quote unquote, for free, just really makes people's <laughs> minds boil a little bit. And I think that ultimately is what it comes down to. And why, why we don't is that we've, we, we need these narratives that say certain people don't deserve it. That props up that, you know, I worked for what I got. I, I did X, Y, and Z. And therefore, like, that's why I get it. And you didn't do that. So therefore you should, you know, we never would go as far. Well, most of us wouldn't go as far as to say like, you deserve to suffer on the streets, but it, it runs up against this narrative of like, yeah, I, I worked hard and got what I got. And therefore I should have some sort of advantage over somebody else. And the mind numbing thing around that, like way of thinking around it is of like, you know, I, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and everything. That way of thinking about it is like you, you associate that with the people who are like, let's be fiscally responsible and everything. And at the right. same time, the fiscally irresponsible thing to do is to just simply manage homelessness. That's what's yes. just like, blow, and, and that's the thing about capitalism is that we often think that like it's the most efficient or whatever, when it actually continuing to uphold the system of capitalism is the very reason why so like it's actually the fiscally irresponsible position to take when it comes to not just homelessness, but also healthcare as well. It's just, it's mind numbing to me that like we continue to have this debate that, and to continue debate as if capitalism is the fiscally responsible position when it actually clearly is not. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's why I, I think I, I'm sure I say it somewhere in the book that like homelessness does not follow traditional party lines for how people Mm. think about it. Like there obviously is like a fiscal conservative, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like we associate that with Republicans. Right. But on the like 
neoliberal side to the point you made earlier, there really is this like very similar entrenched idea that like, I would say because of capitalism infects both sides of the political spectrum that, oh yes, we should help. But at a certain point, if a person isn't willing to follow exactly my prescribed action plan, that they've therefore, you know, opted out or proved their, their lack of deservedness for the thing that I want to give them, but they're just not, you know, participating in the right way. Right. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. The other thing that like bl- just like numbs my mind when it comes to specifically homelessness in the U.S. and how especially conservatives and, and certainly you just mentioned before neoliberals respond to it is that like there's no real world examples of homelessness being ended. It's only managed when actually it's like you and you laid it out like there are so many countries already that have essentially ended homelessness in their country. And these mm-hmm. are countries that are also very similar in terms of size that are similar to the U.S. And that's mm-hmm. what just like also numbs my mind is that like we have so many examples to take and actually start to implement some of these same policies that they've enacted to end homelessness. And yet we still continue to think that spending way more money to just simply manage it is the better option. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of those like examples? Like, I, I think you mentioned Finland and there's some other uh, countries in Europe that have done that. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll point even more locally because there's also just this idea that I've heard from many, many people uh, that like, oh, that works over there for other reasons. It wouldn't work right here. But what actually we have seen is there are there are towns or cities who have done it here. And in even a city like Houston they did not end homelessness. Which is in Texas, by the way. I I hope everybody remembers that. Houston is in Texas and has done this. It is in Texas. But what some cities like Houston have done was apply these evidence-based practices to like subsets of the homeless population. So whether it's youth or uh, veterans, they have actually brought those numbers to functional zero using best practices. And then, Mm -hmm. so that it's just sort of used as a, a test group or a, a pilot program and it works. We just have to impl- apply it on a bigger scale, which obviously requires 
a big investment and the bigger the biggest hang up to all of this is that we need that housing stock right right and that's where a lot of cities especially you know coming out of los angeles was just the biggest hurdle is you know every nonprofit in los angeles everyone who's committed to ending homelessness agrees with the best practices which is housing first but if you don't have the housing then you can't do mm-hmm. housing first and that that's where Los Angeles gets stuck and where I fear the rest of the country is going to continue to get stuck as as we continue to allow our housing stock to be commodified and bought up largely by not like ma and pa landlord, but by mm-hmm. large corporation or and even often overseas corporations. Like we're allowing our all of our housing stock to be bought up and then sold back to us at right. an exorbitant rate. There was a interesting video I watched, and I don't think of this as like the best solution to ending homelessness, but I do think it seems to be, especially when it comes to actually the building of the housing itself, this seems to be like one of the better solutions. But there was this company I saw, and I, I think they're based out of the West Coast, but they're essentially like trying to reimagine the actual construction of housing in America. They talked about how the the idea that we take a year to build a house, which seems to be, like I remember when I was a kid and my parents built a house, like that's how long it took it was a year. Like they were like, that's literally a hundred year old idea and has not progressed at all. And so they were like, let's imagine solutions to building a house that can be truncated into just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And and essentially they've created kind of these modular homes that allow uh, just a few people, uh, a few workers to actually build uh, like so many homes within just a few weeks. And so it do- it does seem like when it comes to actual like ac- building the houses that are needed for for ending homelessness, this does seem like there are things out there that like we can actually build these things very quickly and therefore people will be able to have good quality homes. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know if that's something that you've explored in your in your experience of, of kind of the housing issue and everything. But anyway, I, I'm just kind of curious around that. Yeah, a little bit. So I do get a little suspicious of those. And I don't know this one you, you were watching specifically. And I it could be this. one of the ones that you should be suspicious. I don't know. But I, yeah. I just thought I thought it was really interesting that they are trying to reimagine the actual construction of housing rather than continuing to do the year long housing kind of like, and that seems to make sense that like we should actually build houses differently than we did a hundred years ago. Oh, definitely. And I mean, in a lot of cities, it really comes down to like things like zoning where like so much of Los Angeles. And if you get up to the Bay area, like the amount of land that is zoned only for single family homes does not make sense with the, the structure of the population. Right. Mm. Uh, and that prevents even, you know, a traditional construction uh, of like a larger apartment building from existing in a place where it should. So I think that that's one area. I, yeah, I do think that we can think of smarter ways to build where I get suspicious is where groups form around, like let's build tiny homes specifically for homeless people. Let's build them out of shipping crates let's build them like sheds and they end up being something that none of us would feel dignified living Mm -hmm. in but we sort Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. 
you know, that's where I start to get a little suspicious. Like let's, if we're talking about building houses that like anyone would want to live in them, like then great. But if we're talking about like, let's build the bare minimum thing that we can call a house and then ask unhoused people to be grateful for it, like then we have a problem. Yeah, that makes sense. I I will say at least this particular company, uh, and again, it's still it's still within capitalism and everything, but this particular company, like the houses that they were building, I'm like, shit, I like really actually want one of those like right now if I could. So I I will say, I will say that. But one of the things I loved about your book is in the middle of it, you actually explore the concepts of home and, and land. And I think like we often miss like thinking about these things the home and land theologically and conceptually. Uh, and they do seem to be re- obviously very central to homelessness. So obviously home and land are central to the biblical narrative. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. how should we then think theologically about home and land to better understand homelessness? Yeah. I mean, I think in trying to construct a, a theology around homelessness from the Bible, right? Like you don't have in the Bible, like a bunch of like white picket fence houses that people are buying their way into, right? Like that's not the economy (laughs) of the Bible. That's not the world of the Bible. So the closer like analogy or way to understand homelessness is around land loss and land Mm -hmm. acquisition and what, what is done with land that is given and how it's taken away. Mm -hmm. And you know, over and over in scripture, you see uh, it being framed as injustice and ungodly mm-hmm. <laughs> when people's land is taken away from them or people are mm-hmm. removed from a land or, uh, you know, that's seen as a punishment. That is a bad thing. Um, and in the in the Jubilee laws in Leviticus, we see that to set people free from debt is to give people land back that they lost in mm. in an economic system. So I think uh, we we in America separate land from housing because we often buy a house, but we don't own the land, or at least that's more of a coastal thing, maybe, or, you know, in, you know, in areas of the Midwest, like you probably own some or acres. Or even like within renting, like but, you don't own yeah. the land when you rent the place right. that you would call home. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I think that we have to really get to a theology of land to, to understand homelessness and just be very clear that like the earth is the Lord's and everything in it like that, that's, Mm -hmm. that's throughout scripture. Um, and so when we talk about land ownership, you know, as people of faith, like we got to be really, really thoughtful about what we mean by that. Like Mm -hmm. we may be stewards of it, but we, we don't own the earth. We can't. We can't lay claim to that. And what we do with the amount of earth that we have through whatever economic system come to come to possess, you know, has has theological implications. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about the biblical narrative and and you talking about this, that, again, at least from the Bible, we do not own the land. This is God's. And we just happen to be sharing in, in living here on God's land. But the thing with commodifying housing is it does make a very different claim where actually you own the land personally and 
because of that, you can commodify it and do whatever you wish with it and have as much as you want, even if that means other people aren't getting their needs met. So it's, it, it varies contrary to the biblical narrative and how the Bible talks about land and, ho- and home. Right. Yeah. And it, there just is sort of this belief that like once I have purchased a property, I am entitled to milking that for every ounce of profit it can give me. And that, that comes in the form of like then turning around and renting it at an exorbitant rate. Right. Or it also a lot of times looks like I deserve for this property value to increase exponentially without my doing anything. And I'm going to oppose anything that might hurt that property value, such as the the building of affordable housing or the, the building of, you know, some sort of service for, for people who are experiencing homelessness in the area. Mm-hmm. That's where NIMBYism comes in, like, um, which if your listeners don't know, stands for not in my backyard, uh, which mm-hmm. is a group of people who often will frame themselves as supporters of ending homelessness or helping, uh, but they want you to build whatever you're going to build somewhere else. So it doesn't affect their property mm-hmm. values or it's framed as like safety for their children or kind of all these other, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, dog whistles right, of right. I don't want poor people near me. Yeah. It really, it stems from this idea that like, because I, and right back to this kind of capitalist mindset, because I did enough to get into this in group, I, I want to reap all of the benefits of this in group, regardless of how, my doing so makes it harder and harder for anyone else to ever get in that group. And it's just amazing that there are so many people who call themselves Christians that are just like that. And it's like, do you, have you literally read one line from Jesus Christ himself? Like it's just bonkers to think that that's the way you will relate to other people in this world when you, there's no way you could ever conceivably twist Jesus's words to think that that's exactly what he would say too. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, we, I I feel like America and, and capitalism have done such a number on our imaginations that anything Mm. that we do to make money is somehow separate from our, our ethics and morals, except for like the few things that are like very obvious. Like we don't do these things for money, but if somebody will and can pay something towards us, like we'll, we'll get it and we'll take mm-hmm. it and we'll not ask any questions about it. Right. right. In the middle of the book, you talk about the solidarity and mutual aid that often emerges among communities experiencing homelessness. What can house people learn? I don't know if that's the, the appropriate term, but what can house people learn from the solidarity and mutuality between those people and communities experiencing homelessness? Because I, I find that really fascinating that there is so much that we can learn from that. Yeah, it's a it's a fine line I walk in the book because I don't want to glamorize the experience of homelessness, right? I right. don't want to I don't want to overlook all of the the harsh realities and the way that homelessness uh, I say in the book is literally a death sentence in terms of how it affects your overall health. However, because and we've seen we see this throughout marginalized groups throughout history, right? That what develops in situations of unimaginable circumstance is community resilience and community strength and culture. Mm. And so 
and this goes to answer your earlier question of what I learned while I was writing the book is that like realizing that people who are experiencing homelessness may be in touch with what we might understand as like early Christian ideas of community and solidarity and sharing resources that we've lost sight of because our, our housing, our access has, has blocked us from being able to understand them. And uh, just the way that unhoused people depend on each other to watch each other's belongings while one of them goes to run errands or to share food or to share a cell phone charger to know where one another are and miss people when they're missing is something that we house people. We spend a lot of time like making ourselves not dependent on one another to the point that we isolate ourselves to the detriment mm-hmm. of our own health and mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you've, if you've not seen it, uh, the movie Nomadland does a really oh, good job. Yeah. It won best picture a couple of years back really good movie about uh it it is about homelessness but not street homelessness it's about sort of um people living a nomadic lifestyle in vans oh interesting and it again it doesn't it doesn't glamorize it to the extent that you see like how dangerous and risky mm-hmm. it is but you also you come away with it like man these people are onto something that <laughs> that the rest yeah. of us have lost sight of and that's that's really what i and try to highlight in that chapter yeah. and, and, and show how like it already exists and we can come alongside it and join it and uplift it rather than what we tend to do, which is say like, Oh no, no. Okay. That's cool. That's cute that you did all that, but we're going to get you the help that you need and tear you away from that community. And we're going to house you like 30 miles from here and say, yay, we ended your homelessness when actually they may be worse off because now they're isolated. They have no mm. access to resources. And all we did was give them our version of, of help. Right, right. I remember in college, you really exploring this idea that poverty is not simply, it's part of this, but not simply just a lack of financial resources, but also the lack of community resources. And so, yeah, if you strip a person who is experiencing homelessness in, in you know, you move them into a house community, but 30 miles away, they very well might lose that community, uh, which is a valuable resource for them in their life. And like you mentioned, they just very well could be even worse off. Right. And when I, when I get asked the question, like where, where can the church where can Christians be better, like poised to help? Man, I really wish churches occupied that like communal idea and that communal space that that the church used to. That like you know what sociologists call like a third space that's not not your home, not your work, but you know where people come and congregate and form community. Like churches are so poised to do that with the buildings that they have and and the ways that they gather, but uh, are often very reluctant to apply that methodology to the way that they do compassionate ministry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Like every other ministry in the church looks like, Hey, let's all gather for food or let's gather and do this activity. But the compassionate ministry is like, yeah, let's have them line up along the side of the building and give them a, 
a pair of socks, you know, mm. and like, and I'm a supporter of giving people socks, but the church can offer that same like community to unhoused neighbors as it does to house mm-hmm. neighbors. Mm-hmm. At the end of the book, you talk about this story where Jesus talks about how there is already enough and there always is enough. And capitalism, as we've talked a lot about in this episode, capitalism is really predicated on scarcity, that there isn't enough. Mm-hmm. How would an economics of enough and abundance even and homelessness? Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in one way, we've already talked about it, that like we, we have enough money we're just not spending it right you know Mm. in order Mm. to address homelessness but you know in some ways we don't have enough affordable housing units but we have enough housing right if you're if you look at vacancy rates uh especially in big cities like there are enough empty units yeah maybe they're not in the right building or they're not in the right whatever but we have enough and ultimately it's reorienting our economic imaginations from, you know, from profit driven to, to needs based. There are people who need this thing. We have what we need to give it to them. Like let's, Mm -hmm. let's make ends meet here. And in that chapter, I really, I talk a lot about sort of what are the intangible things like community, like support, like, like love, like, like abundance that that are more than economics and are are what we what we really do have to offer and what I think is sort of more than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I can imagine a lot of my listeners right now are thinking, "Okay, this all sounds incredible, but I don't even know where to begin when mm-hmm. addressing and being a part of ending homelessness." What are some of those like really tangible things that people can do. Maybe it's the people that they encounter out in the public. Maybe it's, you know, maybe their church is doing a ministry uh, with people experiencing homelessness. But you know, the, what are the things that people really can be doing that they can just, you know, be done with this podcast and go out and now I can go do this thing um, and yeah. be a part of actually ending homelessness? What, what are some yeah. of those things? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is going to sound like really like kind of cheesy and cute, but it starts with like meeting people and getting to know people and in a way that forms friendship, not like, Oh, like that's our, our, our cute homeless friend who we give food to. And like, I ask him how his day is, but like the type of getting to know somebody that, that makes it so that they're, their fate is like caught up in yours, right? Where uh, you notice when they're not there and don't just go, oh, that's interesting, (laughs) but ask why and try to find them, right? Uh, And you notice when the encampment that's in your neighborhood starts to have an increased police presence. You notice when the neighboring school or business is complaining about the encampment and starting to push them out, right? That's the kind of relationship and solidarity that I think not just individuals, but groups of people and neighborhoods and and especially churches should be about. And it's, it's a hard stretch because I mean, at this point it feels like a tall ask for Christians to know their house neighbors, right? 
much less their unhoused neighbors. Right, but, right. but you know, that's I think that's the type of community that we're we're called to as Christians is one that reflects the like the geography of where we are. You know, I think social media and all these things have allowed us to create really important and beautiful life-giving communities like despite geography but also like we we are people bound by by land and by space and we have to Mm -hmm. remember how crucial support and aid and solidarity with the people who are near our bodies Mm -hmm. matters to our our mutual flourishing how do you hope this book inspires and liberates its readers I mean, that is, that is what I hope it does. Um, and I would say that I hope that people walk away without the sense that I hear so often that homelessness is just too big and it has too many intersections with mental health and drug use and all these other things that it feels like so wild. I hope that people walk away thinking, feeling that they understand homelessness enough to to do something about it and mm. both on a micro level of building those relationships that we we're talking about, but also going, you know, voting with, with thoughtfulness about how those issues, even though, even the ones that don't claim to be about homelessness, how they might affect homelessness. Mm. Yeah. I just, I want people's imaginations to be broadened a little bit. Right. I, I think I kind of, mention it in my endorsement for your book, but if we really truly understand Jesus as possibly the most famous person who's ever experienced homelessness, that should radically change the way then that if we claim that we love that person, then we probably should truly love the person experiencing homelessness that's right down our street, right? Yeah. And it sometimes it seems like Christians, especially who claim to be worshiping and loving this person who is the most famous person who's ever experienced homelessness, and yet they do very little to actually eradicate homelessness. And so anyway, I, I'm really hopeful that this book, with the bold proposal that we are to end homelessness, I'm really hopeful that it actually inspires and motivates people to be a part of their own communities doing that very work of ending homelessness. So that's definitely my hope uh, for the book as well. Uh, Last question, Kevin, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Sure. Uh, I am on Twitter a lot. I'm at Kevin M. Nye. One. Great follow. Great follow. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't just tweet about homelessness and make people feel either sad or inspired. I also tweet <laughs> random thoughts about movies or things that I'm eating. Uh, I am occasionally funny. I'm nowhere near like funny per tweet ratio as Mason, but I, I get a good one in there every once in a while. Um, I'm on Instagram at, at Kevin M one. Also, I'm trying to get better at Instagram, but I'm a writer, not a, you know, some of us just have the face for Twitter. So I get it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If I I were good at Twitter, I wouldn't be a writer. I just want my words to represent me. I don't need to put a a picture near them. And then, yeah, my website is kevinmni.com. And that's where you can find links to the book. You can find it wherever you like to buy books. But if you want to know some specific places, they're listed on my website. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, is there a preferred place that you want people to get your book or yeah, what, where, where should people get it? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone has their own 
ethics around, you know, book purchasing, like you can buy it direct from the publisher, which is Herald Press. Uh, and that's going to obviously support them. If you want to support your local bookstore, you can go to them and order it, or there's great sites that you can purchase through that site and they'll make the purchase through the bookstore or like bookshop donates to local bookstores. So yeah, there's a lot of ways that you can go about it. Just whatever you like to do to buy books, do that. Awesome. And uh, will there be an audiobook? I feel like I'm going to try to get on the audiobook train now. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, I have a really hard time of like actually reading a book, but like when I go on a trip or if I'm driving around for a while, I like listening to a podcast and I'm like, might as well just do that with books. And I don't know yeah. why that didn't like come to me <laughs> earlier. I feel like everybody's like, that's duh, Mason. Like that's the no brainer thing to do. And for whatever reason, it's just like dawned on me now that I should <laughs> be listening to audiobooks. So anyway, will, will there be an audiobook that people can listen to for this book? Yes. And it comes out the same time as the, the printed book. Um, so yeah, wherever you get your audiobooks, it should be there. I've seen that it is all, it is already available for pre-order on Audible if you're an Amazon person. But uh, oh, great. yeah, so it should come out right around the same time. Perfect. And I, I just got to ask, last question. I think the people want to know, are you related to Bill Nye? I am not related to Bill oh, Nye. You're, oh, I, I know. No I really I want to, to be. Anymore. If wanting to be related to somebody counted, then I would be, but <laughs> I am not. Yeah, it's sad. And then I, he used to frequent Pasadena where I lived and worked and I never ran into him and a lot of my friends did. And it just really hurt, hurt my soul. That I feel I like did. at least when you were like in elementary school and you would watch Bill Nye, the science guy, I feel like you at least as a kid would have had to lie about that, right? Like you had to like trick all of your classmates into thinking, Hey, I'm related to that guy on the screen right now. That's doing all the science experiments. See, no, it was actually the other way because they oh. were so unrelenting with putting my name into that song. <laughs> um, like I would walk in the room. Kevin, and I, the nerdy guy. Yeah. And, and the thing is any two, any two syllable adjective can fit in there and kids can get pretty creative with two syllable adjectives. Right. So I, at that time, I resented it. As I got older, I was like, oh, this. And also, as a growing up evangelical Christian, like, I don't really want to be all that. Yeah, you didn't want to be associated with that guy. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't so bad back then when he was just the guy on TV. It was only later when he started showing up on CNN to talk about global warming that. And Christians... debating Ken Ham. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By that time, I was cool with him. But yeah, for a period, I was like, no, I really don't like how all these kids just like sing my name in a mocking tone. <laughs> well, anyway, well, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more the, about the book. I, I think it's incredible. Uh, and, and there's a reason why I, I wanted to chat a little bit more about it. And so um, I, I think it ha lays out a very bold, bold statement. But again, I think this is something that we all can do uh, and, and be a part of. And so thank you so much for writing a little bit more about it and how we can actually participate in ending homelessness. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. If you would like to connect with Kevin and Tigerwine and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. 
If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.